Welcome to a Minor Detail Podcast. My name is Ryan Miner. I am your host. I'm an independent journalist and reporter covering politics and news in Maryland. I've developed a reputation for being a disruptor. I call it as I see it. If you're on the political right, you may loathe me. And if you're on the left, you might hold me in equal contempt. I'm straight down the middle. I'm exhausted with extreme partisans. I loathe incivility, and I'm ready to get back to the basics. This podcast is about truth. My job is to get to the bottom of every story, highlighting every small detail and shedding light on the inside of Maryland politics. This is episode 267. On Tuesday, May 19th, 2020, Baltimore City mayoral candidate T.J. Smith joined the show. The conversation begins now. If anybody's tuning in now, I am pleased to welcome for the first time to a minor detail podcast to the show, T.J. Smith. He's running for mayor of Baltimore City. It's a big race. There's lots of people that are following this. I think it's Maryland's biggest race in 2020 outside of the presidential campaign, which I know we're all following. And T.J., he is certainly someone he's a son of Baltimore. Um TJ, you're a former Anne Arundel County police lieutenant. You grew up in northeast Baltimore. Northwest. Don't, uh, don't put the east side on me. Northwest. I'm sorry. Northwest. I had a typo. My fault. Northwest Baltimore. That's some fighting words there, maybe. <laughs> you know what, yeah. though? My wife, she grew up in Reisterstown. And okay. she's, I'll tell you what, she's a, she's a Baltimore girl through and through. And I was... I was looking at social media last night. It's funny because I was looking at Nancy Pelosi's comments, mm. <laughs> subtle comments yeah. about the president taking what the high hydroxychloroquine. Oh, yeah, and well, I was not like, so subtle comments. <laughs> it's like, man, you, the Baltimore girl. You could take a Baltimore girl out of Baltimore, but she's always going to be a Baltimore. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, TJ, you grew up. You live with your mom. She's a teacher, and you also live with your grandparents. And they, I think it was, it was your granddad worked at the post office. Both my grandmother and grandfather both worked at the main post office. I'm mm-hmm. telling you, teacher, post office, it's the all American life. And uh, you've you've gotten a master's, you got a master's degree in management and leadership from the world famous Johns Hopkins University. Mm-hmm. You have a master's in strategic communications, and you went to Washington State University. It's your first run for public office. Congratulations. Thank you. You've been around. Yeah. Uh, You know what, though? Anybody who decides to put their name on a ballot, it takes a lot, man. It takes a lot. And you've been around politicians for uh, much of your professional career, probably enough to know what kind of elected official you want to be and perhaps what you don't want to be. I want to kick off this interview by saying thanks for running. Baltimore City is an one of America's very best cities. I'm a lifelong Marylander. I love Baltimore, and I want to see some positive action that's taking place. And I think anybody who's running has a gr- has some good ideas, and yep. I want to talk about those ideas this yep. evening. And it, for anyone tuning in right now, TJ's got to he's got to jump off around five forty five ish to hit up another one of these Zoom yep. forums. So we will be brief, but we'll also be thorough. So. You know, and t- we could do this again. I'll give you that Please. off the top. As Mayor Smith, we'll do this again. That that'd be great, and I'd love to have you back at any time. TJ, you have uh, you've you've a little bit less money than some of your Democratic opponents, but you've also highlighted that you have grassroots support, and you're not beholden to special interests. Let me ask you: Does this race require deep pockets? Do you need a big chunk of money? 
to be an effective leader or at least get some prominence on a ballot position? Well, you certainly don't need it to be an effective leader. That's certainly not the case. Um, and I have a lot less money than every uh, one of my competitors. It's uh, this top tier of people, especially. The disparity is is just, it's, it's amazing. And um, I even had another elected official make fun of my fundraising back in January. And I think people thought that I was going to be down and out at that moment. But one thing that I'm proving through, proving through this is that I'm continuing to speak truth to power. And the grassroots is what has kept me in this. It's been the people who I've surrounded myself with who've been working for free virtually. Yeah. Um, you know, the volunteer network, when every major campaign has paid staff, I have a lot of people who are certainly on deferred payments and, and not taking any payment at all. Um, and we're able to keep things going and we're able to strategize and message around that, which I think speaks to a bigger point from governing of, 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 of managing a budget. Um, you know, we've had to scrap every single penny together to keep things going. Now, of course, no different than running a government. The more money you have for discretionary use, the more effective you can be doing things. But it doesn't mean you have to be ineffective with doing things. So we have to be smart and strategic with what we do and not being connected to the big money. And, and I'll tell you this, I've turned down money. I've not gone to certain people to get money because I don't want that stink on me because mm -hmm. some of it is stinky. All money's not good money. And one thing I said when I got into this, I'm going to walk into this with my ethics and integrity and my moral compass intact, and I'm going to walk out of it that way. Even with all the bumps and bruises that come along with being a political candidate, there are things you can do to control it. And some of what I've done to control it is really even being in the financial situation we're in, where, you know, some of my team, they call this person. So I'm not comfortable taking money from them because it'll be contradictory to everything I've been saying about this whole process. Yeah. And there's publications that are writing about this race. And it seems that there are six candidates who are in this race who are consistently ranked near the top. There was a poll at a time that had you leading the race. Yes. And I don't know if there has been any other subsequent polls released. I haven't seen any. There may have been, and I've just missed it. But where do you think you stand? Where, where, What are you hearing on the street as you talk to voters, as you do forums, and you pick up the phone and call people and emailing? What are you hearing from Baltimore City residents who are actually going to go out there and cast a ballot? Well, when we ever get our ballots, um, yeah. check my mailbox again today. I got um, another circular in the mail, but I didn't get my ballot again. So when we get our ballots, uh, people are, are enthusiastically uh, bubbling in my name. And it's, it's humbling, again, for somebody who's never run for public uh, office before, but has been a public servant. I, I never did my job to need a thank you. Mm. I just did it because it's the right thing to do. So being in this, um, you know, riding around and I see my signs up and see how people are so encouraged and energized to vote for me. It's, it's a humbling experience, but people are still energized. Um, some are cer certainly a bit dismayed with the process and how it's gone because we were under the impression that ballots were coming in the first part of the month, and now here we are 14 days out from the election, and not everyone has received a ballot yet. That's concerning. And that's and for people, um, considering we're doing a mail-in election. But um, yes, the last poll, Mason-Dixon, uh, independent poll that was done uh, was um, in March and I was in first place. A lot's changed since then. It, it, it's a poll. It's a snapshot at a moment in time. 
Um, that was when we were gearing up for a, a, a potential April 28th election. Right. And then you slide things back. So much has happened uh, where me as a grassroots candidate, where a lot of my strength uh, uh, comes from, is when I get up in front of groups of uh, people, 50 people, 75 people at a community event, a community meeting, and we get to have some more intimate dialogue than the more standoffish approach that you have to do through social media, through television or whatever. So I think we're still in good shape, uh, considering all things considered. And uh, again, I think it's uh, pretty unique uh, considering the financial situation. I've been keeping an eye on the debates, man. They're fun to watch. And you've, you, you, you go out there with your other opponents, you stand your ground, you take some barbs, you, you uh, kind of have to duck and weave some some of the uh i don't want to call them attacks but look you know you get out there and you intercept some some crossfire but i've noticed even with the candidates in, in your disagreements and your discussion about character and we'll get into that in a, in a, in a little bit but the, all the candidates running i've seen they truly have a passion for the city they really do and that's and that is important but we have to pick a leader and we know that picking a leader at this crucial moment in Maryland history, in Baltimore City's history, that the next four years will determine a lot. And it's going to determine what the economic recovery of the city is going to look like. It, of course, you're dealing with this in real time, the coronavirus pandemic, the gun violence and how the schools are going to look and how new businesses are going to be attracted. So I want to get into some policy questions and I want to begin by talking to you about Baltimore City's economic recovery. We hear that term, and I understand it, but some people out there may say, all right, TJ, what does that mean? How are we going to pick up our city? So what's the plan, TJ? What are we going to do to inspire, inspire new businesses to shut up, set up shop in Baltimore City? And how can we spur some new commerce? How can we get some life breathing back into a city that has incredible potential? Well, you just you named the three big issues, crime, education and emerging out of coronavirus. And the other thing that's probably just as large with instilling confidence in people and investors is confidence, confidence in who the leadership is in the city. It's not corruption. It's not the embarrassment of the city. Again, we have to look at like we can use right now situations that are going on. When we talk about the economic viability of the city. I'm a proponent of starting to ease some of the restrictions on our local businesses. Um, our public health is number one, but we also have to consider the economic viability of the small businesses that really are the nucleus of our town. I believe that we can go to an alfresco way of dining, for instance, where we put uh, tables outside and allow them to have basically their restaurant service outside socially distanced. We have to be creative at keeping the revenue going so these businesses can survive. I heard from one business owner that the expectation is around 50 percent of restaurants might not survive this. That should be scary because that scares the crap out of future business opportunities in the city of Baltimore. So working to keep what we have now is important. But also, as we get small business loan and small business loan availability uh, uh, infused into our city government, we have to make sure, one, it's getting to the appropriate people that need it most. Two, that it's not this bureaucratic red tape process. So designating a specific uh, person or function to do that in and of itself and really cut down on the red tape, cut down on the time frame, 
relaxing or looking at policies so people don't have to wait this long. And I just use like today, um, you have to put in a permit to get outdoor seating, for instance. Mm. Well, let's fast track that. Let's make that happen and let's relax those things now. So let's just start thinking ahead. But we also have to look at what we're going to be advocating for, what partnerships. I haven't seen a lot of joint press conferences or much from the state delegations yet about what we need from the General Assembly side or what we need from the federal side in Baltimore, uh, specifically, specific to Baltimore, but Maryland as a whole. We have to look at service jobs, get more service jobs in our city, in our state, and make sure we're providing those opportunities to those people who are going to need it most who aren't coming out of this with a job on the other side. And I look at the manufacturing opportunities and the technology opportunities. This uh, this contact tracing is going to be the thing of the future. It's mm. going to be what we're talking about. What are we doing right now? And not in December once I'm sworn in, right now to get more Baltimoreans up to speed and involved on that. I shared something on my social media just last week where Johns Hopkins, I believe it was, was doing a training for it. We need to make that widespread available and we also have to target it to specific groups of people who we know are underemployed or unemployed or are gonna be emerging out of this pandemic unemployed to give them different opportunities and also manufacturing PPE. This mm. is our future and those opportunities are gonna be there. So we should be working towards it right now. You're going to have an opportunity if you're mayor to, of course, work with Governor Hogan for at least two more years. And then, of course, there are going to be another gubernatorial election. And it's hard to believe that that's already coming up in two years when we have this major election in Baltimore City. So far, TJ, how how do you rank the governor's response to the coronavirus in, in the state of Maryland? What are your thoughts and do you agree with the governor's response and in the future what would be your process for working with state government to bring resources into the city? Well, um, first of all, my career has been in law enforcement mainly, and I've remained apolitical over that time where I had to work with people from both parties. So I was more of a nonpartisan person because it didn't matter because we we're still going out accomplishing a job. It didn't make a difference if my county executive was Republican or Democrat. Sometimes it might have made a difference on my pay raise, but it didn't make a difference to the quality of service that I was going to provide the residents that I served. Um, so that's number one. With that being said, I'm the only candidate that's worked in three different jurisdictions at the top of three different jurisdictions for people from both parties, different county executives slash mayors, uh, state delegation, council people. I have a great relationship with Governor Hogan, and I'm fortunate to have one. We're not going to agree on everything. And we can look at Baltimore and all the Democrats. We're not going to agree on everything. And we don't agree on everything. So it's about getting to a happy meeting. I feel like the response from the governor at the very beginning of this throughout has been uh, fantastic. I think with his leadership, we fortunately haven't fallen back into a situation where you're seeing in New York and New Jersey, not to disparage their governors because of the density of those areas, but we avoided that opportunity to become a true hotbed for this coronavirus. Now, I will say more recently, I wish there had been more of a joint press conference with the county executives and the mayor when the reopening phase one went into effect so it could clear up some confusion because it looked like we had a little bit of mixed messaging where you have people that are very upset. So it probably could have been something that could have been better messaged by saying um, Eastern uh, Shore, Western Maryland are gonna be going into phase one. 
If 95, 295 or either the beltways touch you, you're likely not going to be going into phase one right away. Um, just to have continuity and messaging. But I want to be a partner with the governor and you have to be a partner with whomever it is. You can't wait until your party gets in to office to do what's in the best interest of your residents. I think that we can accomplish a lot of things that are completely nonpartisan um, by, by having a, a very good relationship. And I plan to have that with Governor Hogan that I already have, but plan to have it over the next two years of his uh, uh, final two years of his term. I want to shift directions just a bit to gun violence. Your brother Dion was killed in 2017, and it's one of the most harrowing and gut-wrenching stories that I have read. And that narrative, you have talked about that openly in this campaign. And I know it. I can't imagine how tough that has been on you to share these details about your brother's death. And first, TJ, I was hoping, if you will, to talk about how that personally impacted you your, your and your decision to influence you to run for the city of Baltimore. And then let's get into talking about that big issue of gun violence and crime. So yeah. I, I just, I can't imagine how tough it's yeah. been. Yeah. I mean, um, that moment in 2017, um, I thought about it yesterday. Um, and yesterday was the moment of anger. Yeah. And I, I think I was going through old pictures on my cell phone and saw some pictures of Dion from back then, 2017. and it, it made me think it was anger. Like, it, like, does this dude sit in a jail cell thinking to himself, why did I do this? Mm -hmm. But the moment for, for that um, to happen, um, you know, in the capacity of the work that I was doing, it was, it was wild. It was a wild moment, uh, a heartbreaking moment, yeah. but it's one of those moments that makes you, it, it helps define you as well. I care passionately about, every person who was killed on these streets before then. And I feel like that's why people rallied around me afterwards. I got cards from all over the city of Baltimore and all across the country, but including from, from lifers in Jessup that are serving life in prison, sent me cards in the mail and letters in the mail. And, and it was a humbling experience and, you know, I read a news article just a couple of weeks ago. I'd be, you know, this, this is what happens. This is, I guess, part of grief, reading a news article um, from back then. And it said, Dion Smith, brother of, uh, of chief spokesman of uh, Baltimore Police Department. And that was like a big deal to me because it started out as TJ Smith's brother. No, my brother has a name and that's who is the victim in this. And I wanted that to be the focal point. But what it has allowed me to do um, as I was doing before, is continue to advocate for homicide victims and their families. And what I wanted people to see, as you have a lot of candidates who talk about, you know, we're going to get murders under 200. I released a commercial, my first commercial that I released um, on social media and then on to network. Um, it's called The Burden. And in it are four people, me included. So three moms who lost their children. And coincidentally, all of us um, our, our loved ones were victims under the number 175. So they share this collective disrespect of, I'm going to get murders under 200. Well, that means our loved ones still would be killed. Mm -hmm. We should never be okay with that. And from the environmental side, we have this thing that is touted, zero waste. Our goal is zero waste. But we don't seem to have that goal with life. We don't have a goal of zero uh, losses to homicide. And I want to continue to change that narrative that we have to talk about the people who aren't captured in those numbers. 
So my brother being murdered 173, it doesn't include me, doesn't include his sister, doesn't include his father, doesn't include his mother, it doesn't include his children. So you go down the list of all the different people who are impacted by this one act of violence that is quantified, I think people need to hear it that way. And as we look at the pervasive violence in Baltimore, we have to stop apologizing for the behavior of the criminals. And we've gotten to this point, and I think 2015 was a, a shift where we started apologizing for criminal behavior, and we have to change that. And that's one of the things I haven't shied away from. Wow, wow. And let's talk about the gun violence itself. Mm -hmm. You have a crime plan that you've unwinded, you released, you put out there, it's on your website. And if anybody is uh, able to tune in now to your website, it's tjsmithforbaltimore.com. And I'm looking at it now, and you have a crime plan in which you talk about several aspects of controlling what's happening and at least getting it under control. Uh, within the city. It's a big one. And I got to tell you, it's very specific. So can you unwind some of the tenets of the plan? Yeah. And I'll say this, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Ah. Famous words by Mike Tyson. And, and I say that to say, you have to be prepared to alter your plan yep. uh, because things are going to change. This is an ever evolving situation that we're dealing with. But um, I'll go through a couple of different layers really quickly. Great. Of course, I, I want to make sure I'm clear that I'm not the candidate that's going to apologize for criminals, violent repeat offenders. They're the people who need to occupy jail cells, and I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, but specifically focusing on them, because we know that the average murder suspect and the average murder victim has been arrested between 10 and 12 times. We know the specific pockets and geographies where the violence is occurring. We have to focus on them. We also have to hold the uh, people who are illegally possessing guns accountable. Not This is not a war on the Second Amendment. This is not a war on those who legally possess handguns. This is the people who illegally possess handguns. We do not have a problem in Baltimore with legally registered guns on the person of someone who's going to kill. That just is not a, a, a problem that exists. So we have to hold that person accountable. Right now in the city of Baltimore, in the state of Maryland for that matter, if you're caught with drugs, with possession with intent, that's a stiffer penalty than if you're caught with a gun in your waistband, a loaded gun in your waistband, and you were about to go execute someone. You, If you're caught on your first offense, it's a misdemeanor. That, If you're caught on your second offense, it's a misdemeanor. It's a misdemeanor to possess the gun, and we're not holding people accountable. In and in and in, in and out, in and out. But I also spoke about trauma. The trauma uh, go teams is a concept that, I've long thought about because we're harboring this energy and this anger within people and in certain communities, they're seeing it over and over again. It's not normal to come out your house to a crime scene where somebody's lying in the street dead or blood is in the street from a, um, a murder that occurred. There was one specific incident that struck me last year where a man was killed in the overnight hours. During the day, the fire company came around and they were spraying the blood down in the street and spraying it right down a gutter. And I went and knocked on doors in that neighborhood and I asked them if anyone um, other than the police detectives and the media stopped by to say, are you OK? And they were looking at me like I had three eyes. What do you mean? And I'm like, this is not normal. Blood. So you have kids like you never know what you can impact. And that's a long term strategy. But you never know what you can impact, because if the kid is upstairs or an adult is psychologically um, hurting from what they witnessed, but the kid is upstairs playing with figurines 
and they're playing and acting out that shooting that occurred. That's a problem that we should be addressing early on instead of allowing them to harbor that energy that can resurrect itself in violence later on down the line. So uh, coordination and collaboration, something I was a part of for many years, and it's something that we have to do a lot better job where we're touching the people who are most likely to reoffend. And the last piece of this that I want to just touch on briefly is the reentry, the behind the walls treatment. And you talk about a relationship with the governor. This is something that I will uh, uh, push for from the state side is specific behind the walls tre treatment and training for those who are coming back to Baltimore zip codes, because we know that the recidivism rate is high for returning citizens. We know also, and it's a link on, on my uh, website, 93% of the time, if you go into prison and you come out with a job, you will not reoffend. While 70% of the time, if you come out without a job within four months, you'll reoffend. If we know that, we need to target that group because what we're trying to do overall for long-term sustained reductions is shrink the pool of candidates that want to get involved in criminal activity. You oversaw Baltimore City's police communication strategy during a period of violence that surged, including the trials of the police officers charged in Freddie Gray's death. Mm -hmm. That clearly had to be an incredible an impactful moment in your personal career. And yeah. TJ, you have really spoken out about what you have called the culture of corruption inside of the Baltimore Police Department. And you said in a recent debate that you saw some of the most prolific criminals who wore the uniform that lasted way too long. And you mentioned and pointed out that uh, when Sheila Dixon was mayor, who's now a candidate, uh, that she may have had some responsibility in the proliferation of the gun violence. Can you talk to me about that? What does that mean? It starts at the top. Um, you know, the, 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 your, your people take direction from the top. And the Gun Trace Task Force was what I was referring to with the uh, prolific criminal uh, offenders. Because, again, the vast majority of the men and women of the Baltimore Police Department are going out there busting their butts to keep people safe. And they do it in a, in, a, in, a, in a great way. And then you have the people that put a stain on the badge and on the uniform and do what they did. And to think and see what the Gun Trace Task Force was able to do, that's not something that just pops up in 2015 or 2016 like some people want to allege. That's something that grows over a long period of time. And through the indictments and through the information that we all down know, this started back in the mid-2000s, in uh, uh, 2007, 2006, 2007. And, 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 and they just grew because it went unchecked for so long. And when you're so concerned with corruption at the top, it makes it much easier for those at the bottom. I mean, you can just really, you can pare this down to a, a relationship. You can look at a, a mother or father in a relationship, and they have this unstable relationship that they're in and they're constantly switching out partners. They're constantly on the move. They're constantly doing things that uh, we wouldn't think are, are right. And they have five kids and a couple of those kids go off the wrong uh, path. We will diagnose that situation and say, well, their parents weren't paying attention to them. Their parents were too busy doing this, that, and the other thing. So we can take it down to that micro level and we can show you how at that macro level, the exact same thing can take place. So that culture, and, and, and again, 
I look at that from working for three different governments and looking at two police departments, although I didn't work for the Baltimore County Police Department, that culture didn't exist. And when you want to change that culture, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But you have to start at the top where at the top, you're not tolerating this. And we've seen just a churning in two mayors of 10 years to resign. How is that instilling any confidence? And then the sandwich in between the two mayors are delegates and others who have been caught up in corruption. Again, how does that bode well for the confidence of people who could be teeter-totting on the verge of corruption? I think I think you make an astute point that people in the state of Maryland have looked to city officials in Baltimore and they said, what the heck is going on? Why are we having so many problems where longtime state delegates are resigning? They're going to jail. And I, I want to bring this up because Baltimore City, such vibrant potential, incredible mm-hmm. promise. And anybody who looks at from the outside and, and looks at the state of Maryland, they see that Baltimore, of course, is our economic hub, our engine of prosperity. Mm-hmm. It is truly one of the great American cities, though it feels like that the city's leadership is sometimes its own worst enemy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that character of le- the character of its leadership, it matters. Catherine Pugh, who was backed by the Annapolis political machine, she's gone to jail. Sheila Dixon resigned as Baltimore mayor in 2010 after she was convicted of embezzlement for taking gift cards that were intended for underprivileged, needy children. And look, you've been criticized for the tax returns and you've addressed this issue. You've released your full credit report. I don't want to do that from back in my college days. And and you've released your full I think you've released your driving record. I want to I want to I want to touch on that. But first, yeah, we look at all the criminal activity and corruption and what people pled guilty to. They pled guilty. It's a barter system. In exchange for your guilty plea, we're going to get rid of the rest of the stuff that you did. We have accustomed ourselves to believing this is a singular incident that these folks were involved in. They were involved, every single one of them, a pattern and a course of conduct that went on for a long time. The Catherine Pugh thing really blew me away. Um, and, And one of the reasons why, I mean, one of her staffers who has now been indicted twice under her tenure over a three year period, when I saw him working at City Hall, I was like, this is strange before this all happened, like, wow. But that's part of that culture that exists. The the stuff that was thrown at me was political. Um, The criticisms about taxes. This is coming from one network um, that is specifically uh, engaged with another candidate who doesn't ethically disclose to their viewers that they've donated tons of money to this particular candidate and they are going after every other campaign except that one, and they turn things into more dramatics than they need to be. I'll, I'll give you the full story. You might be the first person to get the full story from me. We about like a good scoop, man. Thing. So I had always planned to release my taxes, and I had been in communication with the one outlet that was asking. Only one outlet was asking. Fox forty-five, where did this, right? Fox forty. When did the stand? Where did the standard of five years come into play? The five years was brought up by that one candidate. And this one station pushed that message. It started with this person who decided to start running for mayor last year, early last year. So that's his standard. Maybe it's something in his sixth or seventh year taxes, so he needed to cut it off at five. I don't know, but that's the standard. There's no law for it, but that became the standard. Okay, I'm no longer 
um, um, with my wife at the time. So two years of those taxes would have been when we filed jointly. And I hadn't made those conversations or decisions prior to getting in this race with her. Out of respect for her, I wasn't releasing those to begin with. No one had a problem with that. I gave them a full letter and explanation. Here are my three years. Then they started pestering me. I said, well, I'm going to get them all done. I've owed taxes. So I'm not in a big rush to get them done in January. I'll get them done soon because I know I'm going to have to write them a check. Got the taxes done. And my accountant made a mistake. I walked in and he said, I'm really sorry that this happened. I left something off last year that I had to go back and amend. And just FYI. You and, and the biggest thing, you know, at that point, I have to pay more than what I've already paid. So I paid it and, and we, we took care of it. Release it. They want three years. They go down this. Uh, they want five years. They go down this dramatic and turn it into something that it's not. But when you said I released my credit report, my driving record, my FICO score, I wanted to give them more than what any other campaign had given them so they could get a better and more full and complete picture of my finances that you might not be able to see with these two other years when I was married, just because it's not fair to someone who's not running for office to put their business out there. The, and, and what I was trying to explain to them is that a credit report really tells you more. And we can look back at some of the criminal indictments of some of these um, elected officials. They got money that they went and paid off bills for. Cheryl Glenn, she was in debt. She had, she had uh, bill collectors coming after her. Uh, Sheila Dixon, the same thing. It's this uh, guy who ran from the courthouse because it was like 4000 4500 bucks that went to an American Express card. So I want to show you that there are no unexplained lump sums of money, no crazy amounts of debt that I've incurred. So here's a more full picture to hopefully help close some gaps. Because it's sexy right now to talk about someone's tax returns because that's what she pled guilty to, they want to turn that into controversy when it's really not. And sadly, what we're looking at is 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 a political. Uh, uh, it's, it's more political rhetoric um, with the, the the lawsuit. Let's get full disclosure here. This lawsuit from Red State Maryland, um, Red Maryland, whatever the blog is, that's going out of business. Um, they, <laughs> they're the, they're, they're I, I think it's important one. to say that they are indeed going out of yeah, commission. They're, so they're, yeah. yeah, they're shutting down. But they're the only ones that put forth this because it lacked journalistic integrity. Yeah. And guess what? This is what people don't know. The person who crafted this document is the lawyer for Fox 45. What in the hell world does that type of stuff exist in? The conflicts over and over and over again are just extraordinary. And it's upsetting because it's like all this time I spent in public service and I'm okay with the questions. I knew I was going to deal with the addendum. Let's, we have to talk about it. But let's be fair and let's not continuously drag people through the mud trying to make a point in order to boost another candidate and not really talk about that candidate's uh, uh, issues. I've been, yeah, I've been following this race, I think, semi-closely. And I read The Sun every day. I got a dig digital subscription and I, I follow the candidates' platforms. And... I'm someone who believes in second chances, and the city of Baltimore has given lots of second chances to people. But I have to ask you, TJ, look, it, Sheila Dixon, who has has come back and has presented herself, and you've been on the same debate stage, and of course, I don't know what that's like, and I don't ever want to find out what that's like, but I got to tell you, is, is, is she ready to become mayor again, in your opinion, after what happened, after this 
character issue, and I know she's apologized, and I know she's made her peace, but is the city ready for this? If, if she does become mayor again, is that the kind of message that we should send to the state of Maryland? Well, one of the things that I looked at in calculating my run and as we go through this, is that fair to the city of Baltimore, uh, knowing that we'll be the punchline of many jokes on late night television, investors from around the country and around the world will look, will look at this race and they'll look at this city and say, do we want to invest in that city? Um, I don't want to take away from her work as a public servant. Uh, and, and I know that she did some of it with uh, the utmost integrity, but she did some really bad things. And is it the right place and time? And it's not me to judge whether she should be forgiven or not, but is it the right place and time to replace a disgraced mayor who resigned in scandal with a disgraced mayor who resigned in scandal? I think it's a fair doesn't seem like a good headline for the city. I think it's a fair question. I also think it's fair that Sheila Dixon has come out and has put, I think her, put her cards on the table, has said that she accepts responsibility and she wants a second chance. And whether or not the second chance is, is, I guess, enveloped in being elected to office for that vindication, that's up to the city of Baltimore residents to decide. That's right. And yeah. you, I think when candidates and when, when this race boils down to it, I think voters, they look at your policies and they say, okay, T.J. Smith has a great policy on education or he has an excellent policy on crime. But I think it really comes down to is who do the people of Baltimore City know and what is it that is behind them? Who really who are they as people? And they look at your character and they make that judgment call. And this race has really been a lot about character. We've mm -hmm. heard stories and we've read, read reports about one of your opponents the Rue Vignaraja, uh, the traffic stop and what that was about. And he's come out and he's addressed it and he's talked about it. And we've heard about uh, the video inside the room with the young lady going hidden camera. You've you've mentioned that as well. And you, we talked, you know, in Brandon with uh, the, the ethics report that I guess was never filed. Well, well, um, and, and, and rarely do I ever do this. But when when one particular media entity is the only one to report and blow certain things out of proportion. I don't put much credence in that. Um, and, and for that matter, I don't think that um, Brandon um, went out of his way to do something wrong. And that's part of what we have to look at with people. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said patterns. A mistake is something you do and you don't do it again, or you get better at whatever it was. A pattern is something that you continuously do and you can easily know that it's wrong or you shouldn't have done it or what have you. And I see a moment and 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 there are a few people who've been through these moments. A pattern are the people who've gone through multiple years, whatever it might be. Again, you look back at every single convicted um, uh, official and look at what they actually did, not what they pled guilty to. What they actually did when, again, you know, I knew Cheryl Glenn from working with her and dealing with her not super well, but it blew me away when I read the indictment, it blew me away. I could not believe it because I'm looking at the lengths that she went through driving from one location to another. It reminded me of being a drug cop 
when the drug dealer would set a location but change the location because they knew they were under surveillance. Hmm. That's a different level of intent versus I, I, I should have signed that form or I should have done it that way. That's that different things. Sorry to interrupt it, but that's no. I just want to be fair because, you know, some things are political mudslinging and some things are actual patterns that can tell you a lot about a person. I've seen it in this race, and I know that it has to be exhausting when you really want to talk about what city residents are talking about. And when you walk up or and you're handing out signs and you talk to folks that are answer their doors or congregated somewhere, that's what. That's what the word is on the street. People know what needs to be done, and they're looking for people that are going to follow through mm-hmm. on their word, and they're going to make that decision come June the 2nd. What in, in, in these races, I've noticed over the years, TJ, that if there's, there's a hook for one candidate or the other, and you make a small pitch, and you have to hook people in quickly— what is that for you? When you walk up and someone says, "All right, man, listen, you've been you've got a you've got a great education, you've done some excellent work in your career, but tell me, what is it that you why should we elect you? What do you say to them?" I'm a non-politician who got in this for public service and to continue my public service. I'm not in this for myself. I'm not in this to run for another office. I'm not in this to boost my reputation or anything else. I'm in this for the city of Baltimore. I'm in this to not be politically correct and be bold and make decisions. I have an abundance of common sense. I think I am a smart guy, but I don't think I'm the smartest guy in the room. And that allows me the the, the purview to hire the right people to make the right moves that need to be done. And I'm not scared of the criticism that comes with making bold decisions. And that's what we have to do. And that might mean redirecting money uptown that was meant for downtown or it's gonna go to downtown. That doesn't mean being beholden to the people who put money in your campaign coffers. That means being beholden to the streets. And I often say, I'm not an asset of any media corporation or big money special interests. I'm an asset of the community. Now, and and that's why I've been viable this entire time. That's why I've been the least funded candidate that was in first place in the polls. And you have a career and communication yeah. Yeah. and that yes. it matters the right message for a city at the right time. People have to understand what your priorities will be, how you plan to execute them, the type of people that you hire. And to your point, you're right. You have you a leader, a mayor must have the knowledge and the wisdom, the professional wisdom to make decisions about whom they're going to put into respected positions and what the city leadership is going to look like in the future. And so I am I am confident that the candidates that stand on these the stand on the stage alongside you, I think that all of you have important points to make. Drive that home now in the final weeks of of talking to people and i'm sure you're hearing a lot of different information coming in there's a lot of concerns the people are worried about their jobs they're they're out of work because of the coronavirus they're worried about having to go back to work about and business owners great point to that as well we're i know lots of business owners that are that are worried the restaurants my wife and i love going down to little italy can those restaurants survive so we have to do everything we can to make sure they do. Yeah. And that starts right now. We have to be creative and think outside the box. This is not a by the numbers thing. And as much as we look at numbers and statistics, this is about really thinking create creatively and thinking outside the box. We're in the midst of a pandemic. 
We're in the midst of something that's, that we've never dealt with before. And with that being said, we have to do things differently. We have to do things like we've never done before. So we need to get to it. We can't play it safe. Uh, and when I say play it safe, safety first. But we can't play it safe with decision making. We have to think exotic thoughts to try to get people and businesses generated. Well, big ideas are what will be called for in this in this tremendous city. I love Baltimore City. And I think that no matter who is elected the next mayor, there's, like I said, there's a lot of promise, but still a significant amount of work to be done. TJ Smith for Baltimore.com is your website. Uh, you're on Facebook and you're on Twitter. Facebook, TJ Smith Baltimore, Twitter at TJ Smith Be More, and Instagram at TJ Smith Baltimore. And uh, Ryan, thank you very much for having me. Um, again, uh, open invitation. Um, I will be back on as Mayor Smith. And if you would like me back on, should I not succeed uh, in this campaign, I'll be more than willing because uh, we can converse about a myriad of other things um, as well. And I'll have more time. Well, and I appreciate that. You're welcome on a Minor Detail podcast at any time. And I know that there's a lot of other things to talk about. But I will say this as a final thought. A man who can rock a bow tie, which I love to do. I tell you what, that's uh, that's cool. And I, I see you, I'm looking at your website now. You have a good selection of bow ties. Yes, uh, I enjoy my <laughs> bow ties. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot at home and it's funny. I, I'm like, I don't know if I want to put the effort in to tie in a bow tie when I'm be sitting in my living room. But, you know, I try to mix it up every now and again. I learned how to do it on YouTube about six years ago and I never looked that back. Was- yeah, TJ Smith running for city, uh, running for the mayor of Baltimore City. Thanks so much for coming on, and best of luck to you throughout the rest of the campaign. Thanks a lot. You have a good one. Appreciate you. Thank you, TJ. You have a good day. Hey, everybody. It's Ryan. Could you do me a favor? Please consider subscribing to A Minor Detail Podcast. The show is listed on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your podcast. If you're feeling kind, you can even publish a review of the show. Visit and like us on Facebook.com slash A Minor Detail and follow us on Twitter at A Minor Detail. Remember, that's minor with an E. Don't miss the latest podcast episodes. Visit aminordetail.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter. We have a great reach through a minor detail podcast, and we'd love to have you advertise on the show. Email me at ryan at aminordetail.com and let's talk. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.